AM American Majority. Days of Revolution is a podcast series brought to you by AmericanMajority.org. This is Ned Ryan, and welcome to episode 16, The Sons of Liberty. If asked to compile a pantheon of early American heroes, we would all list such names as John Adams, Patrick Henry, John Hancock, Samuel Adams, and Paul Revere. We remember all of these men for their devotion to liberty and their selfless contributions to the cause of freedom, the same freedoms that we enjoy today. Yet all of these men have something else in common. They were all members of an important and influential organization of patriots called the Sons of Liberty. Now, when I say Sons of Liberty, many of you probably think of the Boston Tea Party and other events related to the American Revolution, and you would not be wrong to do so. But by the Boston Tea Party, the Sons of Liberty had been in existence for over eight years, forming as a response to the Stamp Act of 1765. Many historians have debated whether the Sons of Liberty were trying to start a revolution with the response to the Stamp Act, or whether they hoped to accomplish something else. The short answer is actually that the Sons never intended to start a revolution for American independence. Their immediate and main purpose was to threaten, harass, even do bodily harm to the royal stamp agents. Beyond that, there is not much proof of any long-term plans for the Sons of Liberty. But the secret organization, begun in Massachusetts, quickly spread to all of the colonies and would be a catalyst and nucleus for organized resistance that eventually led to an open war with Great Britain. The Sons of Liberty formed in 1765, originating with a group of Boston shopkeepers and artisans intent on resisting the recently passed Stamp Act. The Loyal Nine, as you might have guessed, indicates the original nine members of the Sons, were John Avery, John Smith, Benjamin Eddies, Stephen Cleverly, Thomas Chase, Joseph Field, Henry Bass, and George Trott, men who, for the most part, history has forgotten. But these men were the first to organize and agitate against the Stamp Act. Despite their desire for secrecy, within months the Sons had grown to 2,000 men in Boston alone. It must be understood that no matter what images or narratives you see in history books, the Sons were very much interested in stop, stopping the Stamp Act by any means possible, with physical harm very much a part of their strategy. They were an underground resistance, with the name of the organization known in public, but there were no rosters of official members, as the Sons were viewed by the British authorities as being guilty of treason. And many times, the various groups of Sons acted as cell groups, with very limited knowledge of who comprised the members of the other groups yet there was the ability to coordinate action amongst the leaders of the various cells. With a secretive nature, meeting many times late at night, with physical violence and intimidation a part of their modus operandi, it's little wonder that the British authorities knew the Sons of Liberty as the Sons of Violence, or the Sons of Iniquity. Historians differ as to the exact location of the Sons' first formal meeting. Most claim that, the Boston, that Boston was the site of the first Sons of Liberty gathering, but historian Pauline Meyer writes that they were officially formed at Burns Coffee House in New York City. Some have pointed to an event on August 14, 1765 in Boston as the first official act of the Sons when a mob hung in effigy Andrew Oliver, the stamp man of the crown. But the hanging in effigy was just a warm-up act for the mob. They then burned some of Oliver's property, took the effigy down and deheaded it in front of Oliver's home in a none-too-subtle act, 
And the amazing thing is that no one actually tried to stop the mob. But regardless of what the first actual event or when the first meeting was, historians agree that the sons were created with a twofold purpose opposing the Stamp Act and corresponding with like minded groups throughout the colonies to organize resistance. By the end of 1765, major cities in most of the colonies had groups assembling for these exact purposes. But not only had the organization started local chapters in every colony within a matter of months, the Sons had approached, through a variety of means, subtle and not so subtle, every stamp tax collector in the colonies by the end of 1765. The Sons' arguments and overtures to the collectors must have been very convincing, because by January of 1766, every stamp collector had resigned his post. The original men forming the Sons of Liberty were generally the shopkeepers and artisan classes, but the membership quickly grew into the middle class and even the upper classes. Many of the Sons were respectable members of their communities, many of them working as professional men, merchants, and even local officials. Some were prominent members in their churches, trades, and clubs. John Hancock, one of the wealthiest men in all of the colonies, quickly became a son of liberty, and along with Hancock, John and Samuel Adams, Paul Revere, Patrick Henry, James Otis, and even Benedict Arnold were also prominent sons of liberty. Now, the name Sons of Liberty was not a novel phrase. In the 1760s, it was normal for a man devoted to limited government to be called a son of liberty or a son of noble freedom by his friends and admirers. However, it's thought that the actual term son of liberty and the name chosen for the resistance is actually traced to a speech given on the floor of parliament when Isaac Barr, who opposed passage of the Stamp Act, referred to the colonists who were organizing and uniting to resist it as the sons of liberty. And it's believed that Samuel Adams, though not one of the original founders of the sons, saw Barr's quote in a newspaper and decided that that was the name that should be used for the secret organization. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the Sons are best remembered today for more inflammatory acts of resistance, such as the Boston Tea Party or the tarring and feathering of British loyalists. But historically speaking, their most important and influential act was the establishment of the Committees of Correspondence. Though not afraid to use violence, the Sons used the press and letter writing very effectively to galvanize resistance against the British. The Sons began meeting in coffee houses and taverns up and down the East Coast in 1765. And then, in an impressive act of organization, they established a letter writing network stretching all the way from Massachusetts to Virginia by March of 1766. For the first time ever, committees of liberty-minded patriots were communicating regularly to coordinate an inter-colonial resistance to an act of parliament. Their correspondence was sophisticated and effective, and it became possible for a chapter in one city to know the affairs of another in just a few days' time. The result of this unity and organization was staggering for British officials. In many major cities, the Sons of Liberty organized large-scale protests against the Stamp Act, pressured their local officials and custom agents to resist the act, influenced militias, published newspapers, and even nominated their own candidates for office on occasion. As a public display of their influence, local chapters of the Sons of Liberty would construct liberty poles or designate liberty trees, public meeting places where activists would gather to share information on current events and protest the Stamp Act. These meeting places became so infamous among British troops that many of the poles were repeatedly torn down, only to be reconstructed soon after. 
At times, British soldiers and sons came to blows over the Liberty Poles. The Battle of Golden Hill in New York City, a running battle of swords and clubs between dozens of British regulars and the Sons of Liberty, is the most notable of the armed conflicts between the Sons and the British soldiers, but it was not the only one as the Sons continued to agitate and make life miserable for the British at every turn. With their more peaceful and savvy tactics, the Sons of Liberty won more and more acclaim from commoners, as well as more powerful men. Pauline Mayer writes that in many colonies, British officials feared for their own sovereignty because militias had either refused to answer royal governors' calls for support or were so clearly behind the mobs that it seemed foolhardy to muster them, and local magistrates had often proved similarly useless. Apparently, for some British officials, the sun's influence appeared so widespread and threatening that the colony seemed to be all but lost. Thomas Hutchinson wrote in a panic letter to a friend that the authority of every colony is in the hands of the Sons of Liberty. Amazingly, this letter was written in March of 1766, only months after the Sons had really truly begun meeting and organizing. Already their message of liberty and repeal had gripped the colonies to such an extent that they appeared to be taking over, and it seemed to Hutchinson and others loyal to the crown that overnight, British control over the colonies was utterly collapsing. To some observers, it appeared that the Sons of Liberty had taken control of the colonies, a revolutionary act. But based on the historical evidence, the Sons' repudiation as a group of revolutionaries appears to be mistaken. Instead, despite their more violent moments, they viewed themselves and acted as loyal subjects to the British crown who were in opposition to a single issue, the Stamp Act. Now, make no mistake, the Sons of Liberty were certainly not lacking in zeal for freedom and limited government. They detested the Stamp Act precisely because they considered it to be a violation of their rights as Englishmen. Such sons of liberty as Patrick Henry and Samuel Adams would later be labeled traitors. And as I discussed in an earlier podcast, James Otis had already publicly renounced his post as an attorney for Britain only a year before. In such cases, these patriots' animosity towards British authority developed because they valued the principle of liberty and God-given rights above their allegiance to king and country. Yet even in their energetic organization and mobilization against the oppressive Stamp Act, the Sons of Liberty made it clear that they were not a revolutionary movement and were instead a resistant one. In the months following the passage of the Stamp Act, an interesting tension complicated the activities of the Sons of Liberty. On the one hand, the Sons sought to fight the Stamp Act effectively to the point of repeal. But on the other hand, they wished to maintain order and their allegiance to Britain. In some cities, the Sons of Liberty expressed a desire to maintain a certain degree of gentlemanliness in their acts of protest. For example, in Annapolis, the Maryland Sons of Liberty agreed to a commitment to suppress all riots and unlawful assemblies, tending to the disturbance of the public tranquility or the injury of any individual in his person or property. In addition, several chapters advised their members to protest Stamp Act officials with respect, despite their passionate opposition to the act. The Woodbridge, New Jersey Sons of Liberty instructed their members to treat local British officials with that compliance and decorum becoming a gentleman of honor. Interestingly, the Sons' displays of continued allegiance did not stop at respect for their local officials. Generally, the Sons of Liberty did not even blame King George or Parliament for the passage of the Stamp Act. Instead, they vocally reiterated their support for the king, 
and look to him as their defender against the oppression of the unjust tax. In fact, according to Pauline Meyer, to judge both their public resolutions and private correspondence, loyalty to the king was the most significant bond linking the intercolonial Sons of Liberty. Many colonial newspapers hailed the king as the preserver of the colonist rights, dedicated to a scrupulous maintenance of all of our inherent rights as British subjects. Another paper wrote that King George III glories in being the king of freemen and not of slaves. Of course, it begs the question, if this was the case, why would King George impose such a tyrannical tax on the freemen he loved to govern? Parliament was similarly exonerated by many of the Sons of Liberty. Instead of portraying Parliament as a tyrannical body bent on parasitically siphoning finances from the colonists, many of the Sons of Liberty attributed the passage of the Stamp Act to parliamentary error. It was most likely, according to the major colonial newspapers, that Parliament had been misled. The Boston Gazette wrote that Parliament had been carried away with false reports that eventually caused it to pass the Stamp Act. However, the Sons of Liberty maintained hope that with the colonists' help, Parliament would eventually realize the error of its ways and repeal the Unconstitutional Stamp Act. So who was to blame for this ruse? The accusations flew in two directions. First, some Sons of Liberty blamed a small contingent of British cabinet officials in the financial department, the equivalent of our modern bureaucracy. Newspapers speculated that a few tyrannical appointed officials had, for whatever reason, misled Parliament and the King into passing the Stamp Act. In a letter to a committee in another town, the Norwich, Connecticut Sons of Liberty referred to the King's cabinet as a wicked and treacherous ministry. The sentiment appears to have been quite common among the opponents of the Stamp Act. Second, and much more interesting, rumors of a French conspiracy circulated. Some Sons of Liberty speculated that French agents had planted the idea of the Stamp Act in the minds of British lawmakers, hoping to alienate the colonies from the British crown and take back the land they had lost in the French and Indian War. This scheme was best summed up by Christopher Gadsden, prominent Son of Liberty from Charleston, South Carolina. Gadsden labeled the Stamp Act as a Jacobitical scheme to alienate the affections of us Americans. Such a conspiracy would surely have been interesting, but it was as unlikely as it was elaborate. The Sons of Liberty's effort to repeal the Stamp Act continued for the next few months until the Act's repeal in March of 1766. Upon hearing of the repeal, the Sons of Liberty reacted in an astonishing turn of events. Immediately, in many major cities throughout all of the American colonies, dozens of chapters of the Sons of Liberty voluntarily disbanded. Most notably, the New York City Sons of Liberty, which may have been the first chapter ever established, announced the dissolution of our society immediately upon the repeal of the Stamp Act. The disbandment of the Sons of Liberty was not without a qualification, however. The Sons promised to reconvene if their liberties were ever threatened again by a similar act from the British government. As we know, the time would come when the circumstances would call for just such a reunification. The dissolution of the Sons of Liberty is significant because it reminds us that they were a one-issue organization. Though the Sons surely valued their God-given right to liberty above all else, it's important to realize the immediate context of their, their actions in 1765 and 1766. The Sons of Liberty were established only to fight the Stamp Act, and to do so in a resistant but non-revolutionary way. Using their mass appeal and sophisticated communication and organization, the Sons successfully defied the will of the British Crown, 
forcing the repeal of its most tyrannical act to date. The Sons of Liberty remained influential until the end of the American Revolution, and their legacy is applicable even today. The Sons' dedication to liberty brought widespread support and involvement to their movement. Their sophisticated network of communication and the efficient mobilization of activists was crucial to the Sons' success. Today's political movements continue to benefit from good communication and coordinated efforts. And for a grassroots political movement, the Sons of Liberty accomplished a very impressive feat in a very short amount of time. But as we'll see in later episodes, their work was not yet finished. Days of Revolution is a podcast series brought to you by AmericanMajority.org and written by Ned Ryan and Eric Josephson and recorded by Ned Ryan. If you enjoy this podcast on American history, be sure to check out the History of the Constitutional Convention by Ned Ryan at AmericanMajority.org or on iTunes.